Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the podcast, Three Sides, with me, Aaron McLeod, where we will talk about all things that fall under the umbrellas of high performance, passion, and equality. So today's episode is going to kind of cover what this podcast is all about. Once we go through that, I'll tell a few short stories, personal stories, about why I am who I am, and then we'll go over what the podcast will look like in the future. So first of all, I mentioned high performance, passion, and equality. So I wanted to go a little bit more into depth of what I'm talking about. First of all, when I talk about high performance, I'm thinking sport, my own personal career. I've been to four FIFA Women's World Cups, two Olympic Games. I have a bronze medal from the 2012 London Olympics. And because of that, myself and my team, we were put into the Canadian Olympic Hall of Fame recently. So that's a all the highlights, of course, of my career, something I'm so, so passionate about. But another part of high performance for me is mindfulness and the Mindful Project, which I'm a proud co-founder of. The other co-founder being Dr. Rachel Linval. She has her doctorate in mindfulness. She's a boss. I will get into all the details of her on our first episode together. I myself am a certified mental coach and a certified meditation teacher. And another part of high performance for me is simply just being the best version of ourselves, what that looks like. We can get into topics like nutrition and sleep and recovery and interview a lot of different coaches and athletes. So it should be a lot of fun, but also digging into what is at the root of learning, growth mindset, all these kind of wonderful things. Next, passion. So I am so passionate about sport, of course but also art, food, all these different things. I'm really interested in genius, if I'm being honest. When I think about art, what uh, gets me going is when artists do something for the first time, when something is totally original. Is it totally original? Is there always input from others? That for me is quite fascinating. But also the state of flow side of things, which kind of ties in mindfulness as well. But when you're in that state, uh, when almost anything feels possible, and just that pure love of something. I'm also really passionate about connection between people. Of course, I've been on a team for as long as I can remember, but really getting the most out of one another that is really tied to my personal why. I love that. And of course, I'm a big family person. And then finally, the last thing we covered was equality. And for me, that's a lot about social justice and awareness, which has been really huge these last two years, for me personally anyway. And uh, the triangle that's part of the logo, the pink triangle actually represents um, during the Second World War, when the Nazis were putting the Star of David to dehumanize a lot of uh, the Jewish people in the concentration camps, they had a similar concept with a pink inverted triangle, which basically uh, dehumanized the homosexuals uh, during that time. And not until recently has the LGBTQ plus community taken that symbol back as a power symbol. And I'll dive into my personal story as to why that's so important for me and being an advocate for the LGBT plus community and um, just trying my best to be um, an activist, but also continually educate myself. So you might be wondering why three sides? Why have I chosen high performance, passion and equality? 
Well, I have a personal story for each side of the triangle that um, were kind of all igniters, I guess you could say, why I feel so passionate about all these areas. So the first one I'm going to start with is high performance. So when I look back at my career, I'm often asked, you know, what is one of the most significant or important moments of your career? And I think a lot of times we think of, you know, the moments we win something big or have this like huge, huge success. But for me, it was quite the opposite. I remember in 2007, it was a Women's World Cup in China. And three days before the opening game, Karina LeBlanc, the other, the number one goalkeeper at the time, injured her shoulder or something. I can't remember. And so, and I had been like sitting right bench for years for Canada. And this was my opportunity to shine. So I played in the tournament. We didn't do very well as a team, but I remember feeling, first of all, I was just so happy to be playing in games. And second, well, I I did pretty well. I was pretty happy with how I did. And I had this meeting with my goalkeeper coach at the time, and he sat me down and he was like, you know, Aaron, I really think you're going to be one of the best goalkeepers in the world one day. And I don't know the normal reaction to this, but for me, I was like pissed. I was like, ugh, one of the best goalkeepers in the world. Why would anyone want to be one of the best? I want to be the best. So I had always worked really hard and that's kind of what got me to this point. But I think when you get to the top or close to the top, the hardest part is staying there. And I think I kind of approached this the entirely wrong way because I thought, okay, in order to be the best, what does that mean? That means I'm not going to make any more mistakes. No one's going to compare me to anyone else, nor am I, because I'm best. So this was obviously a recipe for disaster. I don't know any of you listeners out there, how you take mistakes. I am unlearning a lot of my habits because I'm really hard on myself. So I've always been a perfectionist and mistakes were like the enemy, right? I was a classic, classic fixed mindset. So fast forward a year later, we're getting ready for the Olympics. So what they say about the Olympics is true. It's freaking amazing, right? You're you're in this village with all of the best athletes in the world at their sport. So that's fantastic. I remember the first day, one of the first days in the village, I saw LeBron James like clearing his food tray. And I said, I had an outer body experience. I was like, hey, LeBron, <laughs> uh, bless him. The guy said, hey, back to me. But, um, and I saw like Messi, Aguero, all these fantastic athletes that I just worshiped. But on the field, I had got so accustomed to being so brutal to myself. My self-talk was so unforgiving that Anytime I stepped on the field, I was scared. I was literally afraid because if I was going to make a mistake, I was always thinking about making mistakes. And then I also, when I had made a mistake, I would never forgive myself or stop thinking about the mistake. So I was just stuck really mentally and it squeezed the joy out of the game for me. So... In the middle of that tournament, I tore my ACL and, you know, I was that like gung-ho child with the the t-shirt that was like, soccer is life. And so when I tore my ACL, everyone was very worried about my mental health, but I was relieved. I was like, I just needed a break. 
from the pressure that I was obviously putting on myself. So this was kind of a moment that like turning point for me where I, I started to look in the mirror and I'm like, I love this sport so much, but I'm, I'm learning to hate it. And when did I develop this mindset? When did I start being so cruel to myself when I was making mistakes? Because if you take a, a step back, right, mistakes are inevitable, first of all. And second of all, that's how we learn. That's how we grow. So this was a turning point in the sense that I started becoming obsessed with the self-improvement books. Like, how can I enjoy the game more? How can I learn? How can be better at learning, kinder to myself? And then I had this wonderful sit-down chat with our sports psychologist at the time. And I'm a, an art fanatic. I absolutely love art. I remember sitting down with him and we kind of shifted the conversation from my over-focusing on mistakes in soccer and we shifted to art. And he said, you know, well, how do you feel when you make a mistake in art? And I was like, this guy is off his rocker. Like, what a weird question. There are no mistakes in art. You paint over it, you start again, you try a different technique. Sometimes the mistake is the most beautiful part of the piece. And I said this to him, of course, and he, he was smiling ear to ear. In this moment, I realized I had chosen to see mistakes as the worst thing in the world when it came to football or soccer, but I didn't choose to see it that way in art. And with art, I felt liberated and free and limitless, really, just to see what I was capable of. Whereas in soccer, it was the opposite. I felt like if I made a mistake, it would show that I wasn't good enough. And then my self-worth went down and it was this whole just really negative experience. So that was a moment I realized I can learn and unlearn whatever I want and was extremely powerful. And the other thing that I realized is you know, and this happens with a lot of athletes with performance anxiety. When we're stressed about the future or stressed about the past, like that's where the anxiety comes from. But when we're actually in the moment, it doesn't exist. So that was a really huge moment where I started to shift and make mindfulness part of my, my life practice, I would say, not just in sport, but also the moment where I realized I had to start changing the narrative in my brain, my self-talk, my self-compassion. I had to switch that to where I actually embraced mistakes and realized that in making them, that was the moment when I was still trying to see what my limits are. Now, I'm one of those people that is very lucky. I would say I have many passions and things I love, love, love to do. But this next story is about where I found my uh, first love. So I think one word you could use to describe me is someone who is very passionate. And I'm also a bit of a romantic. And I look at sport the same way. I know a lot of people can probably think of that moment when they fell in love with someone or with something. For me, I fell in love with that Olympic dream in 1988. So when I was five years old, my family and I, yes, the whole McLeod gang, sat in our living room. Let me paint the picture for you. It was the 80s, so we had this turquoise carpet, brown corduroy 
sofa with like a light brown wood as the trimming. And we were all huddled around this very boxy TV. And it was the 1988 Calgary Winter Olympics. And Elizabeth Manley, a Canadian figure skater, was performing. So we're all watching. The music was intense, of course. She was absolutely fantastic. And when the music died down, her hands, she covered her face and you could tell she was gasping for air, right? Her chest is going up and down, up and down. And when she moves her hands from her face, you can tell she's bawling because she is so proud, these tears of joy. And in the arena, every single, cause it's in Canada, right? So every single Canadian is up on their feet, cheering like crazy, a sea of red and white. And in my living room, I look to my left and my right and my parents are bawling. We're an emotional crew, so are my sisters. In that moment, it was so electric. And I was five, five years old, and I knew in that moment I wanted to go to the Olympics. I didn't know how, I didn't know through what sport, but that was the defining moment. That was when my Olympic fire was lit. And finally, equality. Now, I've been an LGBTQ plus activist for years now, but I think for me, it is a lot more than just that. I remember when I was five years old, I had a rockin' mullet. I was, I mean, the 90s were, there's some great years in there. Um, but even before that, you know, I had the, the Reebok high tops and baggy jeans. And like I said, the mullet, I was a little bit overweight and I had a lisp. Yes, I saw a, a uh, <laughs> there it is again, a speech therapist every week, actually. So I wasn't really considered the cool kid and I got bullied on the regular, actually. I didn't really fit in anywhere. I've always been an outcast and I've always been obsessed with sport. I was confused from a very early age because my heroes were Wayne Gretzky, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, obviously Michelangelo's my favorite, pizza and into girls. <laughs> Took me a while to figure that one out. But anyway, um, these are things that I thought were only associated with boys, or that's kind of how society put it. So being with the boys is where I felt more comfortable. I felt more like myself. I wasn't into playing Foursquare at recess break. That's what the girls played. Or Barbies or gossiping. I mean, it was just, it was not my jam. And I was made fun of no matter what gang I was hanging out with. So if I was with the boys, they'd call me Big Mama and all these other names. And I remember this one girl in particular. Her name is Suzanne. Still not a fan of this girl. But anyway, um, I remember this one specific incident. I was out for recess and my mom had just got me this wicked awesome Hudson's Bay uh, letter jacket. And it was beautiful royal blue with the white sleeves. And I don't know if you remember Jawbreakers, you know, the candy that is like the size of the world and it takes you four years to literally lick to get to the middle of it. 
Anyway, Suzanne was having a jawbreaker that day and smeared it all over the back of my brand new jacket. And I remember being mortified and embarrassed, and I didn't really understand it. And not too long after that, I ended up going on this diet. Like I was always competing with my father, right? So if my dad had two helpings at every meal, I would have two helpings at every meal. And if he had dessert, I would have dessert. And my dad is over six feet tall and a grown man. So, you know, probably wasn't making all the right decisions in the fifth grade. So I ended up going on this diet and I lost a bunch of weight and I grew my hair out, I got my ears pierced, I became what uh, society considers the gender norm for being a girl, and then I was popular, I was the star athlete at school, I was getting hit on by all the fellas, and it was eye-opening for me because I started to really believe who I truly was, was not cool enough, was not good enough, And the bullying really, really stuck with me. And if you think about it now, the last two years have been so incredible as far as people starting to be more active as far as being anti-racist, helping to support the transgender community even more. And um, I think really what it comes down to is bullying when you're a kid. You know, it's just like normally the bullies are the kids that are like insecure or or kind of ignorant or don't know any better. And then, of course, it's absolutely the same as we grow up. The same ignorance, the same fear, all these things exist. That is kind of the reason I got into just being more of an activist and and having more opinions and saying what I actually think because silence is part of the problem. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Three Sides with Erin McLeod. If you are interested in hearing about a certain topic, let me know. You can email me directly at themotivenation1 at gmail.com, themindfulproject.us. Thank you for your presence and for listening. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.